you're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Roy Thomas, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Avengers Episode 1, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, following a period of the Avengers from 1963 to 1965. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your Silver Age Avengers co-host, Chris Russ. Wow, so this is the beginning, Chris. Are you ready to yeah. uh, to dive into this? I'm very excited. I first read these when I was like probably 10, 11 years old. So they, they kind of brought me into comics. How many times have you read these issues? Oh, I read them over and over again when I was, yeah, like uh, grade school, middle school. And then I haven't, I hadn't read them in a really long time. I'm, I'm in my late 20s now. So I, I probably haven't looked at these in over a decade until I read them for this podcast. Okay. Well, yeah. I only read them for the first time, I'd say maybe about five years ago. Um, okay. Because I, honestly, I'd never really been a fan of the Avengers. I, growing up, I always read Spider-Man and X-Men. Those were my two characters. And the Avengers, I always thought, well, you know, it's just like a bunch of heroes from their own books cobbled together into into their own thing. I, I like the, the premise of the X-Men more because they were um, a fully new created team, whereas the Avengers wasn't. Yeah, it is kind of slapdash sometimes. There's not necessarily like a unifying ethos to the Avengers the same way there is with X-Men. Uh, when I was a kid, I was reading the Kurt Busiek Avengers as they were coming out, which is very continuity heavy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was reading the essentials of the kind of Silver Age Avengers. So they, they complemented each other very nicely. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they would. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah, well, since... Since my younger days, I've uh, matured a little bit and and come to like the Avengers. So (laughs) here we are. This is my second time reading through these issues here, uh, and they're quite enjoyable. So, uh, And you have, tell me about your website. So I I am a contributing uh, writer to Multiversity Comics. Um, So I I wrote for about a year an Avengers comic over, uh, Avengers column over there called Avengers Historian. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Chris J. Russ, and I tweet primarily about the Avengers, but also any kind of comic book related stuff as well. And then I'm actually working on an article um, about the Ultimates, which is kind of a very kind of side Avengers title for um, for a newsletter coming up here. Um, so that'll be uh, that'll be forthcoming for Comics MNT is the name of the newsletter. I don't know if you've heard of them or if you follow them on Twitter. Uh, but they're kind of a comic book website newsletter. I'll be I'll be writing for them um, starting very soon. Nice, yeah. yeah. So you uh, you are well familiar with these issues and can give us a lot of kind of uh, some trivia or behind the scenes or something like that, right? For these oh issues. yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, and there's a I, one thing I did to prep for this episode is for a lot of these villains, I, I kind of looked at their subsequent history with the Avengers. So some of these characters will barely pop up again in Avengers history. And some of them have a kind of very deep, entangled history with the team. So it's interesting to compare and contrast. Definitely. Um, Okay, well, what do you think of this epic collection? Just the package, the the whole thing? 
Yeah, even though it's Avengers uh, Epic Collection Volume 1, it's not something I would necessarily recommend if somebody has never read the Avengers before, unless they are already very familiar with Silver Age comics. It's not necessarily the best jumping on point. I think early on, I don't know if they really knew what to do with with the book in terms of giving it its own personality. Because uh, if you think about this, when this comic came out, they literally put every single not solo Marvel character in it, except for Spider-Man and maybe Doctor Strange. It was, so it was basically throwing everything together. Doctor Strange was, had come out, but he wasn't like, there was no confirmation he was in the Marvel Universe yet at this time. And was Daredevil out by this point? No, in fact, I think this Avenger, this Avengers number one, the rumor is, is that it was rushed to publication because Daredevil was delayed. Oh, so, okay. Uh, this came out, I think, like the month before uh, Daredevil, or the same month that X Men number one came out. Um, and this came out, so uh, it was very kind of just a uh, continuity glue between all the different titles, which is interesting, but it doesn't necessarily have its own distinct voice as a title at this point. While I was reading this, I feel like that was one of the contributing factors or maybe the main factor in making the roster change when you get to issue 16. Yeah, I think I think that's the part in this epic collection. I mean, there's some great issues before that in this epic collection, but I think that's the point that the character's individual personalities really start to come out and the personality of the book starts to cohere. Before we get started, I have a Twitter poll that I want to share with you. I asked the question, who is your favorite Avenger from Captain America's kooky quartet lineup in the 1960s? And I said, base your answer on how you like the characters as they were in 1965, because of course, all of these characters have gone through major changes. So your options for the quartet are Captain America, Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch, and I probably should have not included Captain America because that's kind of a um, kind of unfair for the other three. <laughs> I think. A little bit, yeah. Although I think it is definitely the correct answer, kind of far and away. <laughs> yeah. So Scarlet Witch came at the bottom with eleven percent of the votes. Uh, Quicksilver came in second with seventeen percent of the votes. Hawkeye thirty-five percent of the votes, and Captain America just barely won with thirty-seven percent of the votes. Yes, I was shocked to see Hawkeye that that high up because in these comics he's a generally unlikable guy. He's <laughs> yes. uh, and not kind of the, not even I mean in the Matt Fraction run, which he's more recently famous for, he's he's not a great guy, but it's in kind of a roguish, likable way. In these issues, he's kind of just annoying, largely. I, at least I <laughs> yeah, and I love Hawkeye. I mean, he's one of my favorite Avengers of all time. But when he first joins this team, he he's oh, trying to undermine the authority of Captain America immediately. Yeah. Pretty much immediately. Well, it's not that it's not just that, but he's like he's hot headed, he's egotistical, he's chauvinistic. Yeah. Like there's everything that's kind of bad about a person is is yeah. uh, in this yeah. character right here. Yeah. And it's not couched as like a personality flaw that's the root of some other shortcomings in his or, you know, some bad situations or anything like that. There's no nuance to it really. No. I mean, that's added kind of after the fact. Well, that's fairly typical in this 1960s, especially Stan Lee writing. Nothing's really nuanced yeah. in Stan's writing. And I think the—I mean, I love Stan Lee, but some of the some of the shortcomings of his writing are, I think, part of the reason why Scarlet Witch isn't probably higher on that on that poll because she's a in, in the hands of a really good writer. She's an incredible character, but here she she has moments where I mean, she is by her power set the most powerful member of the team. But you know, there's kind of a lot of the stereotypical like damsel in distress moments where yeah. she's 
blindfolded and helpless. That kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we will definitely not... get to that in these issues. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we dive into these issues here? Yeah, and uh, and, and just to, to kind of review, this epic collection collects Avengers 1 through 20. So this is one of those really clean early epic collections where there's not a bunch of annuals and parts of the issues. This is just Avengers, volume 1, number 1 through 20. And it's all Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and Don Heck. Yeah, I think there are a couple of issues that might have scripters, I want to say. Oh, yeah, they're, yeah, that's true. But Stan still Maybe does the plots. One. Exactly. Yep. Um, yep. And then, and then there's Jack Kirby for the first good chunk of the book. I think through ten, something like that, off the top of the head, my, off the top of my head. And then he comes back, I think, for issue sixteen. Mm-hmm. So it's about half and half. Heck and Kirby. Right. Well, starting us off with issue number one, the coming mm-hmm. of the Avengers. And in this one, Loki turns the public against the Hulk, and the Teen Brigade uh, reaches out to the Fantastic Four for help, but instead. They get Thor, Iron Man, and Ant-Man, who all team up to try and help the Hulk. Yeah, this is a, this is a pretty, I mean, famous, iconic cover, pretty famous issue. Uh, and Loki, as a primary antagonist of the Avengers, is, is kind of cemented because of this and then also because of the, of the movie. Obviously. Of course, yep. The Avengers movie. But aside from that, he doesn't show up a ton in the Avengers he doesn't show up again until the Steve Englehart era in the 70s. Uh, and then very sporadically after that, he's not generally a primary Avengers villain. Which I think is great. So let's save him for the, the Thor books because he shows up an awful lot there. <laughs> yeah, especially early on. He, he was, um, it's good to establish the Avengers with a known villain to start because I think that would draw in readers, especially by yep. putting him on the cover and such. But, uh, um, but yeah, they... They quickly decided to create their own roster of bad guys. Uh, actually, it's kind of the roster is half their own bad guys and half bad guys from other people's books. So maybe that's not the best example. But <laughs> yeah, I think generally this this idea of the Avengers pulling in characters from other books and villains from other books and then some of their own kind of plays into this overall theme for the the collection which is that they this book serves as the early glue between the continuity of all of the different silver age marvel titles which is really interesting i enjoy that as somebody who's read a lot of other silver age books Uh, it's cool to see thor's plot lines come in here and and iron man's and and then they all kind of cross over each other that's true yeah there's points where the characters just disappear from this book because of what's happening in the other books um, with just very, very minimal explanation. But, uh, and then, yeah, totally. And like, uh, there's a Hulk storyline in one of the later issues that's that's kind of uh, interesting the way they told that story as well. Yeah, that was bizarre. I I, <laughs> I don't know if I had seen anything like that before mm-hmm. uh, the first time I read that. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more later. So this issue is an interesting one, just basically for historical purposes. Um, there's just, it's... It's fascinating to see how Stan was thinking about bringing all these characters together. Um, I think there was a lot of. Um, would, uh, the, I, I heard the rumor that you know he did this because of the success of the Justice League. Do you know if there's any sort of uh, yeah. validation? So I've heard I've heard multiple different things. I, I've heard that the Justice League initially inspired uh, Stan to bring together the Fantastic Four. Um, and the reason that book was so different was a combination of Jack 
being informed, like informed by the challenges of the unknown work that he did. And then also Stan wanting to do something that was his own approach to the superhero thing. Um, but I think the the uh, lasting impact of the Justice League uh, and how popular that book is, I, I would imagine that it definitely encouraged them to do something more similar uh, after that. Hmm. And you can kind of see the Justice League influence, especially in this first issue. Um, so I've been reading recently through the Justice League uh, with my kids. And just kind of the uh, plot and motivation non sequiturs and the way that the logic of the book is kind of a fairy tale logic. You definitely see that in here, especially kind of the conclusion uh, where there's some weird radiation laws that are invented um, <laughs> yeah. with, with Loki. Uh, and, you know, he's just in the end, he's kind of goofily locked inside a lead lined tank. And that's how they defeat him. And Justice League stories kind of end like that. Where there's just something random, some traps, some happenstance, and the book just kind of wraps up. It's all happenstance. It's pure, pure chance that Loki gets captured at the end of this issue. Yeah. He just happens to be like just, standing in just the right yeah. place. And they don't say how. But yeah. Exactly. If he were standing <laughs> yeah. one foot to the left or to the right, he they wouldn't have defeated him. Yes. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of strange thing in, things in this that you kind of have to really suspend your belief for, your disbelief for. So in uh in page on page nine for example uh, of the epic collection um the don blake knows where the teen brigade is located like there's some kind of internationally famous organization <laughs> when it's really just a bunch of teenagers on the radio but but it, he inherently knows where they are it's just and the role of the teen brigade in bringing them together is strange and, and doesn't age the best so even though this is kind of an iconic origin issue mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that are very of the era yeah, the ham radio enthusiasts and such. Um, I do like how this heavily draws on Thor's story, his ongoing story with Loki, mm -hmm. and also Hulk's ongoing yep. story with the Team Brigade and just with his with Ross and stuff. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah, it doesn't really have anything to do with the ongoing story of Iron Man or, or Giant Man, but uh, I liked how already like they established that there is ties to the continuity in in this in this first issue here yep and even though it is somewhat uh kind of an evolution or a copying of some themes from the justice league and some ideas from there there's still some very uniquely marvel dysfunction going on um so like in on page 13 i think it is of the epic collection uh, Thor is kind of a bad teammate. He just leaves where he's at. They're all kind of hanging out together, the Avengers. <laughs> yeah. And he just up and leaves without telling anyone why. And, and Iron Man says, Thor has disappeared. Like he, They're not working as a team at all. Right, which is fine. Yeah. Because they, they just don't know how to do it. They've never, none of them have ever been on a team before. No. They yep. used to go in solo. Um, one thing that's interesting to me here is that it makes sense, I think, if you if this issue really was rushed, um, that Ant-Man is Ant-Man, and in the very next issue, he's Giant-Man. So, yes. if because Stan, I, I would have thought, would be thinking ahead a couple of months in um, in terms of the publication schedule to saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to change Ant-Man to Giant-Man. Yeah, it uh, and it, on the cover of the of issue two, it says, "See the new Giant Man." It doesn't. There's no. There's no build up to it. There's no really explanation. Yeah, it it, it seems last minute. Yeah, he's just Ant-Man in one and Giant-Man in the next. So if you're not reading the Ant-Man story, you don't know why this change took place. One last thing on issue one, there's the iconic image on page uh, on page 13 of the Epic Collection of Hulk dressed up as a clown juggling an elephant and oh, a yeah. horse and a seal. And I just, it's, uh, it's a pretty, I, I had to say something about it. 
pretty uh, <laughs> it's pretty it's so funny because it's like yeah let's let's just this this robot walks up to a circus and says i'm a robot i want to be yeah. in your circus and they're like okay robot <laughs> even when i was 10 i was like that doesn't seem right <laughs> that doesn't make any sense yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah so issue two uh so in issue two and now that the avengers have officially assembled as a team they face their first test in the form of the space phantom this mysterious alien being invades the avengers mansion and uses his powers to turn the team against each other wow yeah, yeah. So this is a this what all of these early stories with Stan. If you read a lot of the Golden Age, they have to do with aliens invading or yep. robots of some sort yeah, or, or communists. communists. Yes, those are the <laughs> yes. three ongoing things. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and a lot of times, even within those tropes, there's even more similarities. Like the one scout alien that uh, is intimidated by the power of the heroes and goes to tell the invading forces to turn back. That's one of the common. Yeah, we get some of, some more of these uh, tropes <laughs> as we go on through this. Epic Definitely. Yeah. I do, however, really like the design of the Space Phantom. I like how Jack Kirby is like with the with the long nose and the big huge eyes with the huge eyebrows yeah. and stuff reminds me of how he used to draw uh the wizard yeah which really shifted kind of drastically as the wizard evolved as a character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you look at that first appearance of the wizard back in that issue of Strange Tales, he's got very similar kind of features. So yeah, yeah it's kind of neat to see. I really love that that entire page actually. So page 30 in the Epic Collection. I just the the kind of egg spacecraft transforming into a meteor and the landing of the space phantom is just a fantastic page. Mm-hmm. And speaking of weird uh, kind of physical features and designs, uh, the Hulk in a lot of this has three toes. Yeah, uh, which is, <laughs> uh, and sometimes the number of toes shifts even within the issue. And it's uh, so unusual because like Jack's been doing Hulk for a long time. Yeah. And I guess at yeah. this point, um, is Kirby, is it Ditko that's doing the Hulk? I think so at this point. Um, because this is, I want to say this is after the, the six issues of the Hulk proper. Let me think about this. Hulk gets his own series in Tales of Astonish once Giant Man is already established. So ta- his story in Tales to Astonish has not started yet. Ah, okay. Um, so Ditko uh, hasn't put his mark on this character yet, even though he did an issue in the the original six. Yeah. Um, but yeah, weird that Kirby, I guess, either wanted to redefine what the Hulk looked like or forgot what the Hulk looked like. Yeah, there is actually an incontinuity explanation for the inconsistency in the number of toes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of my favorite writers. Uh, Al Ewing, um, he in his, uh, let me let me look up the name of it, he did a mini-series um, called Ultron Forever, and uh, they addressed this. There's a whole uh, comic book resources article about this, if you're really interested, but basically <laughs> it states that because the Hulk was in such a state of shifting and flux because of the, or the gamma exposure, uh, for the same reason that he had that one issue where he had the head of a man but the body of a Hulk, he has weird inconsistencies on the number of toes. So right. Crazy, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then there's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a couple of interesting things in this issue. The the one that stood out to me the most uh, was inspired by a Tom Scully uh, video. Um, he is the cartoonist for GoBots and Godland, I think are the two he's probably most famous for. Okay. He, uh, he pointed out, he's a YouTube video where he pointed out that in all winners comics, number 19 which is a 1946 comic that stanley edited the plot structure of that is very similar to this in that 
Namor is framed by the villain as being a bad guy and the team all doubts him and turns against him and he rushes off angry and Toro, the young sidekick, rushes off to try to like console him, which is very similar to the plot of this book. Hmm. Um, a lot. Um, I just thought that was really interesting. So some of the early seeds of what makes the Marvel method and kind of plot structure were already in place in the 40s. In this whole right. Well, and it wouldn't be the first time that Stan borrows plots from the uh, from the Golden Age. No, a lot yeah. of his Captain I, America stories were even just page by page copies of it. Yeah. I mean, he was the editor of that book. So, you know, yeah. it's a Marvel property. But yeah, I, I thought that was interesting. I had never heard about that before. Um, uh, overall, I think I thought the art in this um, was probably better than in issue one, which maybe speaks to the, the amount of time they had on this one versus the, the first issue. Yeah, it could be. We also get a different inker, Paul Reinman. Yes. He's this is I think this is the only issue he inks in this book. Yeah. I think you're right. Um, there's some other really cool panels, like on page 42 of the Epic Collection, there's this, the upper right-hand panel, which is a cutaway kind of of Giant Man's cybernetic helmet. is really cool. Oh, yeah. And I really like the the transformations uh, of the of the Space Phantom into the different characters and as they're thrown into limbo uh, back and forth. I thought that was all really cool. Mm-hmm. So the Space Phantom makes one other notable appearance in Marvel history that I'm aware of. Yeah, I'm familiar with him from Avengers Forever. That's the kind of... And at that point, it was kind of evolved uh, into this idea that he was... There was a species of the Space Phantom. Well, I I recently read Under Siege, uh, the Avengers Under Siege book. And oh, yeah. in that one, and this is Roger Stern's Avengers, there is a story where uh, it's in, um, what's it called? The Once and Future Limbo. Kang. Oh, yes, and, which is a fantastic story. That entire epic collection is one of my favorites. Yeah, it really is. It, and that's uh, one of my, I think, part of my favorite, possibly the favorite story of mine in that epic collection. But in that one, the Avengers get stuck in Limbo, and they see their counterparts, like their 1960s counterparts, who get stuck in Limbo in this issue. And you see them come, they, like the characters disappear when the Space Phantom brings them out of limbo and replaces them with another one. You see their old costumes in there. So it's yeah. like, you know that this while this is happening in issue number two, there's a whole bunch of other stuff with the future Avengers happening at the very same time in limbo. And these 1960s Avengers are not aware of it. So I think that's pretty fun. Yeah, Roger Stern is really a master of, of continuity and, and also of, of Kang time travel stories. He yeah. was involved as well with that Avengers Forever story. He, he worked on that in collaboration with Scott Music. Um, and cost Chaco. Yeah, and overall, this this is another issue that has kind of a Justice League, early Justice League feel. Uh, the bad guy imitates a power. Iron Man's armor is defeated by rain because he rusts into place. There's <laughs> yeah. weird dimensions. The villain is defeated on an arbitrary technicality, uh, which I think it's that he can't he can't like send a god to limbo, which is something that everyone just accepts as being, of course, um, <laughs> being a very a very Justice League esque moment. So a lot of those similarities. So if he is able to shapeshift, like he actually takes on the actual properties of iron, like it's not just um, that he it looks like the like iron, but he actually can rust, and he gets defeated yeah. by rust. He rusts in like thirty seconds. <laughs> yeah, it's really fast. I I uh, wonder if that's because Iron Man was a bad engineer at this point, or just because the Space Phantom was bad at approximating rusters. I, I it was. I, didn't I don't know. Do it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that gets established in this issue is that they take 
um, they have monthly meetings. The Avengers meet every single month uh, to talk about what's going on or see if there's things they need to take care of. And each month they have a different chairperson. I think this is an interesting concept. So they have a ro rotating leader. Yeah, and you'll see those debates about chairperson and leader of the team uh, really comes to the fore when it's the kooky quartet team, Captain America, kind of shifts that a little bit. And the whole chairperson thing lasts for a long, long time. I was surprised when I was reading those comics from the 80s that they're still doing that. Yeah, at some point they transition to uh, kind of appointing people as leaders on kind of a more permanent basis. Um, I think you definitely see that in the, the Roger Stern yep, run where, definitely. Um, you know, Wasp is, is made the leader of the team. Uh, uh, Monica Rambeau is made a, a leader of the team by Stern. Uh, there's So there's kind of these more permanent, it's more like a uh, an elected role kind of, kind of nominee. But it's still a rotating thing. It's like there's no, it's not like there's a clear defined leader like Cyclops or Professor X. Um, right. It's like it changes all the time, which I think is a neat dynamic because with that, you get different people calling the shots and different uh, points of view and, and different yeah. strategies. So And egos having to shift. And that, and that kind of, that idea with the role of leadership and how the personality of people have to adapt under that. I mean, that's even in modern stuff like Rick Remender's Uncanny Adventures where Captain America's on the team, but uh, Havoc is made the leader of the team. Mm, yeah. And so he, he doubts his own leadership because Captain America is under him and he wonders if he's worthy of that. There's a lot of interesting things writers have done with that dynamic. Right. Okay, so issue number three, the Avengers meet the Submariner. While in this one, in this one, while trying to evade the Avengers, the Hulk meets Namor, and they team up to beat the Avengers. Yeah, uh, Paul Reinman, I think, is on inks again. Oh yeah, okay, so he does do more than one issue. Yep. Uh, there's also a corner box change, which I I love corner boxes. I'm not sure exactly why, but now it has <laughs> Wasp on it, which is finally. And oh, yeah. uh, Ant Man is now Giant Man in this corner box. Right. Um, I like this cover. This is a great dynamic cover. I'm glad they chose it for the the cover of the epic yes um, i agree it's really really nice there's a lot of action a lot of movement on it it's, yeah so i i don't always understand why they chose choose specific colors for the covers for the epic collection but i thought this one was a, was a good one um yeah well this one clearly shows all of the team yeah uh, except i guess wasp isn't on the cover which is too bad yeah exactly and i mean captain america once he, <laughs> once he oh yeah of he, course <laughs> uh, but but in terms of the original avengers it shows it shows most of them yeah that. Uh, this one features pretty much every character, including the X-Men, Spider-Man, and the Fantastic Four and cameos at the beginning with this invention that Tony has that's like a complete invasion of privacy. It's like he can project himself into any room that he wants yeah, to. Like is... right into somebody's room. I really don't blame any of the people for being rude to him. Yeah. Like like the thing is like just got done changing it looks like <laughs> yeah and like why i don't understand why he thought this was going to be an effective method for recruiting people i love yeah. the the spider-man interaction it's <laughs> he's in the middle of a fight with with villains firing guns at him and i and iron man just wants to like strike up a conversation Stan is great at coming up with these kooky ideas, but then never using them again. Like, how great would this invention be for yeah. reconnaissance? Yeah, it would be fantastic. It's, I think it's used maybe one more time in this collection, but it, it very rarely uh, comes up again. Oh, yeah, you're right. They do use it again in this collection. Just one time. Yeah, the Wasp, I think, uses it. Yeah, but, uh, but Stanley has a ton of those kind of things. Like, 
Iron Man will have an invention that you'll see in one issue that he'll use, some kind of attachment, and then he'll never use it. Never, ever again, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which sometimes is good, because sometimes these kind of random inventions are kind of deus ex machina sometimes, but um, but generally, yeah, I agree. It, uh, although, again, this, this, issue, this issue overall, even though that's a really creepy invention, it does do a nice job of bringing the reader up to date on all these different characters. And I yeah. It was effective cross-line promotion. Exactly, especially X-Men, which had just started up at this point. Yep, yep, who are training, as they always are training. That's kind of their... Yeah. <laughs> it seems like what they're constantly doing in the early days is, is training and jumping through hoops. So these first uh, three issues, along with Avengers number five, are also collected in the Hulk Epic Collection Volume 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this issue is very much a Hulk issue. Like it, it continues on the the story of the Hulk from it could very easily be Hulk number seven, I think. Yeah, and and this is this is one of the points where this book really differentiates itself from the Justice Leagues that were coming out at the same time, because with the exception of an occasional two part, you know, Justice Society crossover issue, the the Justice League issues are mostly one shot. And yeah. and this is really logically picking up on the continuity of the Hulk leaving the team in anger last issue at the end of last issue, which is also a really kind of um, you know Stanley kind of thing. It mirrors how what the Thing did in the early Fantastic Four issues to some extent, and what the, the Human Torch did. So uh, having conflict as a part of your team very early on is a very Stanley thing to do. You get a good sense of the ever-evolving Marvel Universe at this time, which is it's changing on an on like a monthly basis. So last yeah. issue we got Giant Man, and this issue Iron Man has his new armor, which has become the you know the the basis yeah. of every single armor after this. Yeah, which is I think is it Ditko designed? I want to say I'm not 100 percent on that, but I'm pretty sure that's a Ditko design. It could be. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it's it's much more. It's much more. I, I think it's generally a much better, <laughs> much better design. Yeah, a lot of those early Ditko designs are just fantastically, uh, they hold up really well. Like all, all those early Spider-Man villain costume designs pretty much still look really good today. It's yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I, I love the roll call that happens on page 58 and 59 when everybody like has to, they, the, the team brigade, brigade summons everyone and they have to use yep. their powers in order to, to show us what they're capable of. Yeah, um, and it's, it's very quick, like bringing everybody up to speed on the characterization. Yeah, it's, it's really, really cool. Yeah, it's Tony Stark with the pipe and the tux and, <laughs> and the, you know, Wasp and Giant Man in the lab and, and uh, Dr. Blake in his office. It's perfect. Yeah, I, I really, one of my favorite uh, pages to jump ahead a little bit is on, um, is on 65 of the Epic Collection. I just I just like the uh, the giant man hand. For some reason, I don't know why that resonates with me. It's just a very Kirby hand. I like the <laughs> yeah. image of the Hulk jumping over this giant. You get a sense of the size of Giant Man, like mm-hmm. that, which I think is really cool. Right. I guess we should comment on Namor. He's one of the uh, original Golden Age Marvel characters that yeah. uh, is here. We're going to get another one in the next issue. But uh, yeah, he, he comes back and he's primarily a Fantastic Four guy. So it's interesting to see him show up in a book that doesn't include any of Fantastic Four members. Yeah, which is, again, really speaking to how interconnected Lee and Kirby and, and wanted the early Marvel Universe to be. I love that Namor and Hulk both immediately want to betray one another. <laughs> I know, that's, that's so it's good. It's a great character moment when they're both plotting each other's downfall. Yep. Uh, and I also really like that, you know, this is one big fight and it's messy. And also you really get a sense of how different all of these characters are. 
and there's, you know, there's gods and there's billionaire playboys and bug sized scientists. Um, and the one downside of this is that it's harder for Kirby to establish a visual theme for the book, like mm. he does for the science sci-fi of FF or the, the war of Captain America, you know, or the mis- like kind of mystical other regions of Thor. So you lose some of that coherence, but you do have this kind of really bombastic adventure. I do feel like there's um, that, that that even this issue is a little bit on the rushed side as well. Like the there's yeah. there are pages that you can go a couple pages and you you don't see any backgrounds at all, and yeah. some of the characters are not well defined. I mean, you, if you compare this to what he was doing um, in like especially like Sergeant Fury at the same time. Yeah. It's yep. like night and day. You can tell where he's putting all of his effort. And it's 100%. not It's not this. It, it, the issue is basically one big fight. So it keeps it moving, but it's, there's not a, a ton going on in terms of nuance or detail or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, for example, page 74, that's I th- every single one of those backgrounds is just a co- solid color. Yeah. There's, no, there's no distinction between those. Yeah. Oh, and then, like, look at Thor's face in the top corner. And this might be partly the ink's fault as well. I don't know if the inker um, yeah. had a solid grasp on Kirby's style or, or what. But uh, it just none of it's working together, I think. Um, it's not any of these people's finest work. No, I would I would completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, I, I also, <laughs> this is going back a little bit, but going back to page 54 and 55, I don't think Jack Kirby really knows how to draw Spider-Man at all. <laughs> yeah. Especially on page 55 in the top right-hand corner. Spidey's face, I don't think it's ever looked like that before um, or since, which is generally a good thing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, not even, um, he he drew a short story early in, Sp- in Spider-Man, the one where he, like, uh, uh, bugs the human torch at a party that he's throwing. Oh, yeah. That's... But that one's inked by Ditko. Uh, so Ditko... So kind of maybe has a chance to correct some of the... Exactly, <laughs> the yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, overall, this is not a great issue i yeah. would say it's fun but it's it's not one of the finest in the collection well what it does do is if you read the hulk the hulk epic collection volume one uh it actually fits really really nicely in the hulk story so it's it's harder reading it in this collection than it is reading it in the other collection Ah, it, yeah, it's interesting that, that way because that one only I mean it's only six issues of the Hulk in that collection correct it, it, and everything else is just his various guest appearances that's right but the guest appearances the way Stan wrote them is is that the it, the Hulk when he does appear he kind of takes over the show and so the the ongoing story for the Hulk really does continue after issue six, but in other people's books. So you put them all together, it actually reads really well, especially since it's all Stan and Jack because they're yeah. drawing all the books anyway. Yeah, which is really cool and kind of experimental, actually. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty unusual. Well, let's move on to issue number four. This is the big one. All right. Captain America um, lives again. Yeah, this is a fantastic issue. I love this. I've read this issue a lot. Um, yeah, do you want me to summarize this one? Does anybody out there actually need us to summarize this issue? <laughs> I don't think I don't so. Know. I mean, <laughs> well, so I would say one thing about that. I would say that everybody knows the first what half. half. Yeah, and yeah. then the rest of it is so weird. That's it's, true. Everybody forgets how weird the second half of this comic is. Okay, so you better you better give us a recap then. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I, I can just very briefly. 
This issue involves undersea armies, mysterious ray guns, and morally conflicted aliens. <laughs> we can dig into that a little bit more. But, you know, for an issue that's known as the return of one of the most iconic characters in pop culture history, they picked a really weird issue to do it in. Yeah. So the very yeah. first page here, there's a little editor's note. It says, we sincerely suggest that you save this issue. We feel you will treasure it in time to come. Yeah. And man, if you saved this issue, it's definitely a treasure. Like you probably will be cashing in the big bucks if you're trying to sell it. <laughs> oh yeah. And you see that throughout a lot of these early Marvel issues, which is I, because I mean, comic books are were kind of a disposable medium. It was, you know, something you picked up cheaply, you didn't take care of it, you kind of threw it away. And you see in these issues that Lee is really pushing this idea of continuity in comic book fandom. It's not a disposable product. It's a it's a product they really they put a lot of love into. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, encouraging people to save them, and then just everything he does around um, uh, fan groups and, uh, yeah. and that kind of stuff. The Merry Marvel Marching Society and things. It's he he yeah. was good at uh, promoting. That's for sure. He sure was. When you think about what modern fandom is, I mean, obviously Lee is the only person who, in, who invented what that was, but I would say he's one of the most important characters in that, especially when it comes to promoting the artistry of what a lot of people at the time, especially, and even now, considered a, like a low art form. He was putting tons of these credits in there and really drawing attention to the, the artist, colorist, letter credits, which is um, which is really revolutionary for where comics were at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I think I think he deserves a lot of credit for making people um, familiarize himself with the the artists and the creators behind these comics. So I talked about this issue just recently in the Captain America episode one. So if you want to get a different side to this conversation, you can go over there. But uh, basically, we were we were talking about how Captain America. Uh, appeared in the 40s during the war, uh, kind of disappeared after that, and then was tried. There was they tried to revive him in the 50s, and it lasted a very short time. And ultimately, it was a bomb, yeah. and they canceled those titles again. And this is his first appearance since then. However, they've forgotten about his 1950s appearances because they say he died during World War Two. Or he got yeah. trapped in ice during World War Two. And there, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head all of the intricacies of how they retconned that away. But the, at some point, I think they explained that away. Yeah. So the the one of the my favorite pages in like Avengers comics history um, is on page eighty one of this epic collection. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's. I think this is. I mean, it's just an absolutely iconic page. The entire thing, the composition of it. The, the hand reaching out in the in the ocean of giant man to grab Captain America's floating body, the big the big uh, middle panel with Captain America lying there on the table. It's just it's all spectacular. I was kind of uh, a little disappointed that they didn't try and recreate that middle panel for the movie. Yeah, but they didn't yeah, tell the story been... exactly the same way. Yeah, that would have been awesome if they if they would have kept that. Um, but but uh, yeah. Oh, they fine. still did a he good did, job. However, there is a film version of this. If you, it's not as good as the movie, but <laughs> in those old '60s cartoons where they just yep. took panels of the comic and kind of animated them by like shaking them around. Right. They did replicate the scene, and it's actually pretty compelling still, just because of the good Jack Kirby art. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's just such an insane way to bring back a comic book icon. I they so like. None of the normal stuff you would think of if you have to bring back a character. They have him frozen in a block of ice, and then there's a Namor who throws a fit and throws him into the ocean, 
and then he slowly melts out of the ice cube, and then he's randomly picked up by the the Avengers. It's a very bizarre and interesting way to bring back a, a super. So if you look at each of these pages, uh, you can tell that Jack put a lot more attention into this issue than he did the last one. I mean, we were just commenting about how the last one is very underwhelming, but yep. this one has more interesting compositions. It has backgrounds. It has more detail on like the shadows and, and everything like that. So it's like this one, um, Stan, I think maybe Stan rushed through the last one, and but then took his time a little bit more for this one because there's definitely way, way better artwork from him oh, yeah. Uh, in yeah, this it's issue. Great. Like page 84 with the motorcycle and the plane and there's the underwater scene. There's a lot of detail. In a lot of detail. Yeah, well, and even the even the fight scenes, like when he's um, battling people on page 90, yeah. there's just, it's great. Yep, which is where he goes to, to find who <laughs> turned the Avengers into stone and it turns out that it is a green alien who was disguised as a gangster and has been living secretly on Earth since the time of the myth of Medusa. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very strange. It's I very think strange. there's a lot of different Medusa legends within the Marvel Universe. Um, it's kind of like <laughs> in Merlin, where there's a bunch of different Merlins. But this alien is very notably a member of the Dabari, I think is how you pronounce it. Oh, okay. Um, who are the aliens famously wiped out by Phoenix in X Men comics? Mm -hmm. So it's it's officially in continuity that he is one of the members of that uh, of that that uh, group of people. Okay. Wow. Yeah. One other weird continuity note: uh, Namor and Cap don't know seem to know each other or recognize each other. Oh um, yeah, right. Which is which is kind of been hand waved away by saying they both had foggy memories as a result of coming out of MDs or suspended animation. <laughs> uh, it seems like Stan knew that he wanted to pull these characters forward, but wasn't exactly sure how much he had to care about continuity uh, in doing so. So, um, and you see these these embryonic stages of the Marvel universe uh, kind of shaping up at this time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I say that this issue is fantastic. Um, the yep. first half is the second half is just plain weird, but you have to take both of them together since it's one issue. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely yeah. two stories in one. It is fun to see the kind of morally conflicted alien who tries to defeat the Avengers, but it's really because he just wants to get off of Earth, so the Avengers kind of help him. And there's some cool elements of moral ambiguity, um, which, is, um, which is interesting, but yeah, overall it's weird. And, and the reason people are, are reading this comic is to, to see Cap come back. And yeah real this time because the captain america came back in a in a fake way in an issue of strange tales i think it was that's right strange tales 114 yep and in the back of this epic collection in the bonus material you see that this cover initially had a blurb on it that said the real captain america lives again oh um, yeah. so they they wanted to let me we, readers know they weren't going to trick him again this time <laughs> okay issue number five invasion of the lava men the Lava Men have this living stone that they no longer want, so they push it up through the ground, so the humans have to deal with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is, I, yeah, I, I like this issue. I, I think the actual the quality of the art um, largely continues on from mm -hmm. issue four. Uh, it seems like Kirby said a bit of a groove here. Uh, the Lava Men, um, you know, they didn't come back again until Avengers 236, 237, almost two decades later. Oh, wow. Uh, so they're not the... And then they came back in 305 to 308, 
uh, and then a couple more very random uh, times in Avengers Annual 20. But this is not, this is one of those early uh, Silver Age villains that really does not become a staple of the Marvel Universe. <laughs> well, and this isn't their first appearance as well. They they appeared one, uh, one of them actually appeared in an issue of Journey Molto. into Mystery. Yeah. Yep. Just one of them. And which is, and uh, again, in the kind of cool continuity connection way uh, that these, uh, these early Avengers issues are bringing together the Marvel Universe that's referenced very directly. Um, so you kind of have a, a reason to go read the Thor issue. Yeah. Um, or the Journey into Mystery issue, rather. I don't like the way that uh, the Avengers, they say that they kind of care about the Hulk, but they, they use him in yeah. this one. <laughs> yeah. Like in a like, bad when, way. When Hulk left at the end of issue two, he was like, correct. He was like, I know you didn't trust me. You all hate me. That's true. Like, yeah. it's, it was interesting. Like, the Hulk has a very good reason for not feeling like he's a member of the team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the art is, I do have to say, though, the art is definitely rougher in this issue uh, than it was in the last issue. There, when the lava men are depicted, there's some really cool scenes. You know, mm-hmm. for example, on page 110, that's an awesome, pan, an awesome page with all the cool lava man stuff happening. But on page 104, um, there, like, I, I don't, in the top right-hand panel, I don't know, is Iron Man just squatting for some reason? <laughs> well, yeah, what is I that? don't know what he's doing. <laughs> yeah, the, in the bottom right-hand panel of that same page, the Tony Stark's hand is grabbing a phone at a weird angle. It's just, oh, and, yeah. and then on the next page, there's the famous um, pantsless Tony Stark image where he's sitting there in his weird, like, metal <laughs> underwear. There's there's some weird artistic things that happen in here, but but there are also a lot of highlights with the lava men. Yeah, the lava men just look cool. I think there's some great designs on him. On yeah, them. Um, and, and Paul Ryman on Inks does some cool things with that, um, with their kind of texture. I think. I mean, obviously that's Kirby as well, but um, it's carried through pretty well in, in Ryman's work. Uh, Thor. I think one of the other notable things about this issue is that Thor is positioned as the primary character of the Avengers in a lot of ways. Uh, he's there is a there is a, another podcast about early Marvel comics um, called Make Ours Marvel, and they talk a lot about the fact that it seems like Thor was Marvel's version of Superman in the early issues, mm-hmm. and it definitely seems like that in these issues. Um, I think one of the main reasons for that is that uh, Thor, just because of the mythology of his story, deals with larger than life villains. Because yeah. if you if you're reading Captain America and if you're reading any of these characters' comics um, in their own books, they're dealing with like the mafia or um, criminals, like you know low level criminals. But Hulk, I yeah. mean, but but Thor is dealing with like enchantress and executioner and stuff, and Loki who have incredible incredible powers. So if you're gonna put a team of super uh, super people together, you're not gonna be worried about the porcupine. You're gonna be worried about Loki, <laughs> right? Um, you're not gonna be worried about Pacepati. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's why Thor's story, and this is this is reflected in the Marvel movies as well. Thor's story is so heavily entwined more than any of the other ones in the Avengers. Yeah, there's that awesome panel or that awesome page, page 114, right? Just kind of demonstrates his extreme power uh, where he sinks down up to his neck in lava and it doesn't bother him at all. He's yeah. Kind of overpowered to some extent, especially compared to his other teammates. On the flip side, though, on page 121, uh, a good dose of, of uh, nuclear power um, from an atomic blast turns Thor back into Don Blake. Yeah, there's some weird uh, science in this one. 
That's for sure. <laughs> like the fact that um, like Captain America, doesn't he detect the presence of radiation or something at some point? Like, I think it's in this one where he, he somehow, I think he senses it. I could be wrong. That might be in a different issue. There's also the fact that they can only hit the rock in one spot to make it break, which doesn't necessarily make any sense. <laughs> they need Karnak. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the weakness in all things. Yeah, <laughs> at one point, um, Captain America says, Iron, look, Iron Man, look, it isn't radioactive, which I don't know how he knows that. Um, I don't feel sick anymore. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the super soldier serum or something. Yeah, or maybe. Some World War II training, but uh, yeah. Overall, overall, there's some silly things in this issue. Yeah. Uh, which is too bad. It's not a great follow-up to the the return of Captain America. No, no, especially if if somebody bought that issue um, or got all fired up because of that issue, they're expecting something similarly revolutionary. They're I don't think they're quite getting it in this issue. But maybe we should talk about a better issue and go on to issue number six. Yes, yes, issue number six. So, issue number six is the debut of the Masters of Evil. Uh, in Avengers number six, we learn the origin of the man responsible for the death of Bucky and find out what evil plans he will hatch once he gets word of Captain America's return. So I totally forgot that Baron Zemo was responsible for Bucky's death. And then shortly after reading this issue, like just, just recently, I, I, I rewatched Captain America's Civil War, where Zemo is the guy who's behind Winter Soldier. Yeah, it's like wow. I totally that. I guess that makes sense. Um, yeah, I forgot completely about that. Yeah, the the Marvel movies kind of stepped back the weirdness of Captain America's villains. Um, yeah, that's for sure. Nemo is one of those. For example, he does not have um, a mask <laughs> that's been glued to his face, <laughs> right. sort of like root of his angst, um, which is weird. So funny. Uh, yeah, I think there was at some point I didn't know, like a Marvel handbook they explained that he ate via IV tubing. So they had because he literally <laughs> can't get a mask off of his face. Um, it's for like a really deeply, truly evil Nazi. It's a very silly juxtaposition. Yes. Um, yeah, which doesn't necessarily work great. Um, now, is, Zemo is a Golden Age character. Is that right? I think only as a retcon. I don't think oh, okay. he originally appeared in the Golden Age. Um, gotcha. So yeah. And and the Zemo that we know, the, the Zemo, for example, in the Under Siege volume, that's his son. Um, so that's the one that... Mm -hmm. uh, right, yeah, yeah. People, yeah. Um, Zemo is just the, so funny because he's a ruler of this um, this rural country in Africa or something. And he's like, he walks on the backs of all of these people in order to get to his throne and stuff. Yeah, he's like cartoonishly disturbingly evil. Yeah. He, it's in, I think it's in the Amazon now the art on this is um is a lot more detailed you can see uh, yep. there's a lot more backgrounds the the action sequences are really uh, well rendered um there's a lot more going on there but yeah zemo's entire shtick is bizarre i don't understand why that helicopter pilot does all this stuff for him i mean i guess for money but he treats him horribly it's, yeah yeah yeah, there's some there's there's some strange things in here, but it does establish the Masters of Evil, who are kind of one of the most iconic Avengers villains. Uh, we see lots of iterations of them over the years. I went through it all; it's way too much to go into in any any depth here. I, I would say that the probably most famous Masters of Evil story is in the Under Siege storyline, definitely. Um, so yeah, starting in I think two seventy three. So it's that Roger Stern, um, Yusema Palmer run. Uh, where the, the, the Masters of Evil storm even began to 
it's just a great story. Yeah, and you can hear me talk about that story in the episode of the same name, Under Siege. Yep, which is a great episode of, the, of your podcast. Thanks. I big into that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they have lots of different versions of them over the years. Someone's like Egghead, there's a Doc Ock version of the team. But yeah, uh, this is the establishment of that kind uh, of And so this team is made up of characters that we have seen in other books. Um, yeah. Black Knight comes from the Giant Man book, and the Melter comes from Iron Man, and Radioactive Man comes from Thor. Yep. And so, so they're all put together here into a team together, along with Baron Zemo, who is, I guess, a Captain America bad guy. Yes, exactly. Um, the the theme of, uh, of glue based things continues um, as the uh, evil yeah. plot that the which is an, another thing you can't think too hard about. The Masters of Evil glue the city of New York down so people get like stuck on the sidewalk and the cars can't move um, and things like that. <laughs> One of the funniest panels I think is on page one thirty. It's the last yeah. panel. It's just an unfortunate panel because it looks like the melter is like peeing on something. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great <laughs> panel layout. <laughs> um, I yeah yeah that's that's true. And then all the people are like leaping inhumanly high away from their vehicle. It, it's, <laughs> it's not one of the best in the book. Yeah. There's there's if you on the opposite page, there's much cooler things going on with radioactive man with yeah. his glue pistols and then. <laughs> and then the fight scenes on the pages after that. Um, in terms of silly panels, though, on page 133, you see Captain America and Giant Man skiing, um, skiing back. <laughs> because their because their feet are stuck to the ground. Yeah, that, that's exactly that's so funny. There's a lot of humor in this one too. Up. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and then the the whole plot is resolved by the Masters of Evil being tricked to spray like glue unsticking solution all over the city again. And yeah. they're somehow going over the same areas that they already uh, went over just to re-glue it, I guess. I, it doesn't entirely make sense. Uh, but there is a there is a really cool uh, panel in here um, on page 147 in the top right. Um, this reminds me very much of the Alex Ross Marvels series. Um, that image of Giant Man straddling the two buildings Oh I, yeah, really iconic. And generally, you're starting to really get a sense of um, how how big and powerful Giant Man can be, uh, which is something that develops over time. I don't know if this is the first time that this kind of story has ever been told, but you have um, the the heroes all face off the heroes that they usually have faced in the past, and find they can't do it, so they have to switch it up, and each hero takes a different villain. Yes, which. I know it's something that they, I don't know if it's before, right before or right after this, but it's a Justice League-esque kind of thing. Yeah. Um, where there'll be some, you know, them in the Justice Society and they'll face off against a, some, you know, group of villains. But, the Legion uh, of Doom or something. Yeah, one of my favorite parts of this comic is when Pastepot Pete comes in. So <laughs> it's another continuity moment. Because the city is covered in glue and Pastepot Pete is obviously an expert in adhesive, they pull. They bring him in as like a consultant, <laughs> yeah, um, right. as like the glue expert, and uh, they they ask him how they can fix uh, this glue issue, and he, for like a commuted sentence or something, helps them out. <laughs> and he does not. Yeah, he looks he looks very different. I think than how he originally appeared um, in the comics. He looks much more normal. Uh, mm. His is comically kind of warped in the early appearances so there's another instance of kind of uh, character design and inconsistency but overall I, I like that moment I think it's fun yeah. it also kind of makes sense if you have a connected universe for sure yeah it's great 
Also, um, Iron Man gets a redesign of his face mask. He loses the little little parts of the the top that uh, stick out, and um, yeah. Wasp redesigns her costume kind of for the first time as well. Yep. So yep, yeah, lots, lots of just things are always changing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Overall, uh, I think not as good as the Captain America Returns issue, but uh, definitely an improvement uh, over the Lava Man issue. So issue number seven is called Their Darkest Hour, and we see the return of Enchantress and Executioner and Doctor Zemo. They're all they're all teaming up together. So the <laughs> this is funny. Odin banishes Executioner and Enchantress to Earth, which he seems to do with his Asgardians like all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. Thor, Thor and Loki have both <laughs> been banished to Earth, but for some reason he lets them keep their powers. Yeah, I don't get that at all. It's like he's it's trying to be a punishment, but these people who are bent on destruction and chaos and conquering things now are the most powerful people on the planet. So yeah, yeah, it doesn't it, it doesn't make much sense to me. I, I don't get that. I mean, generally we can chalk that up to Odin being kind of apathetic towards how his actions will affect others sometimes. Yeah, like he's not the greatest fan of the world, so maybe he doesn't care that they're going to wreck her. And Odin is supposed to be bringing peace to all of the nine realms. So why would he introduce that element to one of his realms? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. I do, however, love Odin's little the view we get of his throne room and all the different characters in there. There's this guy on page one fifty two who is taking the axe away from the executioner, and it looks like he has like UGG boots on and some kind of like lizard creature monster helmet. <laughs> he. Kind of looks like he could be out of um, the He-Man action figure line. Yes, and he has this giant like handlebar mustache. Yep. It's fantastic. I love, <laughs> yes. I love all that. Uh, yeah. I, I, one other art note, just to go back to the cover, I don't understand this cover at all. I, this must have been rushed because it's this weird black mountain and the villains are just like making these cartoonishly evil hand gestures upward. Yeah. And I don't understand. I, I'm very fine with Jack Kirby playing fast and loose with anatomy for the sake of impact, but I do not understand how giant man's head is connected to his body in any kind oh, of Oh yeah. Weird. I um, think it's because Thor's hammer was swinging in a way that would have yeah. his face. And He's hunching just, over or something. But, yeah. like, look where Thor's right foot is. Like, what is he standing on? He, is he standing yeah. on Executioner's <laughs> leg or something? Or is he elevating? But then it looks like his left foot is standing on the... I don't know. Yeah. It's, well, it's weird. <laughs> it is. It's a very strange cover. I'm glad that's not the cover of the Epic Collection. I'll say that. Right. Yes. So this is the very first time that Zemo and Executioner and Enchantress team up together, uh, which becomes a reoccurring thing throughout this collection. I love Captain America as he starts to explore the modern world. One of the first things he does is hires a bunch of muscular dudes just to wrestle him so that he can beat them up. Like it's a very <laughs> strange way that he's like bringing, like beginning his life in the 1960s. It's, mm-hmm. it's just weird. Um, that's you know, one of those kind of strange comic book things you just kind of gloss over, especially when you're a kid. You're like, hey, I guess people should be able to do that. Strange. Uh, yeah, and there's also a very uh, there's some great lines in here. When let's see here, what is it? Um, I think Rick Jones yells, "You can't just go around fighting guys because they used to be Nazis." I think <laughs> that's when that's when the the on page one the one fifty seven. Um, Oh, no, here it is. It's 158 in the top right-hand corner. Cap is about to speed up this guy. I feel like I wouldn't say that to Captain America. <laughs> right. I feel like if anybody has, <laughs> has kind of a reason to do that, it might be, it might be him. But, uh, yeah, and then you have the bizarre 
transformation of Executioner wearing this weird mask face to trick Captain America. It, it seems like he could have just attacked him at this point. Yeah. Like, it surprised me that would have been more effective than this convoluted plan. But, um, yeah. So we also, on the first page of this issue, get a, a little bit of a hint as to how the Avengers work. Uh, in terms of their their democracy and their structure here, because Iron Man, uh, it's bizarre to me that no one knows their each their secret identities, and yeah. this is something that lasts like through the eighties as well. When I was reading those Roger Stern books, they still don't know each other's secret identities. Yeah. Um, so Iron Man's getting in trouble for something that's happening in his own book, and they decide that because he can't talk about it, they're going to suspend him but they all agreed that they're not going to pry into each other's personal lives so if they are not going to pry they have no right to suspend him for something that's happening in his private life yeah and i don't understand the logic of it at all that you weren't active enough on the avengers so we're going to make you not be active on the avengers yeah it doesn't yeah just logically incoherent Oh man! Um, it's like, yeah. If there's, uh, sorry, you're not allowed to save the world for one whole week. Now go get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely. So I grew up loving the Avengers, and that was you know my favorite superhero team. It's like one of my favorite superhero franchises, and I can definitely see how people who grew up with the X Men, a lot of them, I feel like, uh, think less of the Avengers and their corniness and their you know, Robert's rules type meetings. And I can definitely understand why. Like, uh, <laughs> you just kind of have to accept this kind of thing if you if you like the Well, X-Men has its own issues in this era. So <laughs> it's not like, a, not, not yeah, like Avengers is um, the only thing that's wrong with the 60s. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. But those, that sense of like bylaws and you have to study the Avengers files, that all continues for a long time. Right, yeah. It's a very, very proper organization. Uh, one of my favorite... Uh, pages in this issue is on page 160 of the epic collection the thor's fever dream induced by the enchantress right of all the avengers like evil forms uh, that's really cool i like that a lot yeah it's very cool do you have anything else you want to add to this issue um i mean we see more of kind of baron zemo's weird fiefdom we get captain america's struggle to uh, avenge Bucky that is constantly deferred in kind of a very frustrating way. That frustration, I think, is really compelling as that builds and continues on. Mm, Yeah. Well, we can move over to issue number eight, Kang the Conqueror. Yeah. Um, Kang is my personal uh, favorite Avengers villain, probably my favorite uh, villain in all of comics. So this is I think I might like this issue even more than the Captain America Returns issue. Mm. Yeah. This is one of my favorites. So, so in Avengers number eight, the Avengers meet the conquering time traveler Kang. The mysterious villain recounts his travels through time, arrogantly issues threats, and single-handedly clashes with the Avengers thanks to his futuristic technology. Mm, yes. And we have Dick Ayer's inks, I think, for the first time in this collection. Um, which is a big fan of. Okay, yeah. Um, I also, over at Multiversity Comics, wrote a column about this issue. Okay. Um, so I have this historian columns over there. Um, so I've, I've spent a lot of time with this issue. Um, well, Kang is such uh, a complex character. Yes. Um, and one who's really intertwined with continuity in very interesting ways. Um, so th- this issue talks about how he, uh, in the past, tense is weird when you talk about Kang, um, but he, he used to be Rama Tut, the, the Fantastic Four villain. And then he accidentally threw himself into the future where he had this, uh, he was, became a warlord. Um, and initially he comes from, uh, from 
the, the future, uh, although one that's not quite so barbaric, and he got bored, which kind of inspired him to, to do all of this supervillain. And that, that page 180, where he's in the far future, um, and there's these barbaric armies, it's very fourth world. You see kind of a lot of Kirby's inventive genius. Um, mm, yeah. What basically he gives you a real sense of what this barbaric future would be like, and it's really cool. So it got um, it, this issue opens when they're going to talk to some government officials in the army or whatever, and it just it made me realize that um, Jan is like the Avengers is really four members: it's Captain America, it's Thor, it's Iron Man, and it's Ant Man and Wasp or Giant Man and Wasp. <laughs> like they're just one person yeah. to the point where like they're sharing a chair when they're sitting around the table. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, it's it, connected. And Jan doesn't get to be the the uh, chairperson. Um, like Giant Man already says, I was chair of the last meeting. Whose turn is it this time? And then it's like, no, let's do, let's have Captain America scheduled. Like he's already been chairman. Like they they all it seems to pass her over. She doesn't get to be chairman for the first time until later on in this book, like ten issues later. Yeah, there's she's definitely viewed as a sidekick in the same way that Rick Jones is. That she's kind she's slightly higher than Rick Jones on the totem pole, but not by much. Um, yeah, and and you really don't see the wasp being elevated to um, kind of a more respectable le- level fully. I don't think until you really get to Roger Stern's run. Right. Totally. Yeah, uh, and she and does become. Incredible, team and she's incredible in that series mm-hmm. uh, as a character. I think once she has, once she breaks away from Hank Pym. Yes. Yes, I would agree. And, which I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on how that all. I don't think that it was necessary to destroy, to completely destroy. Hank Pym is a likable character in order for her to have been elevated, which makes me a little bit sad. Um, but right. uh, yes, I, I agree. The, the separation seemed necessary to, to fully bring her to prominence. Um, one of my one of my favorite moments in this entire issue is on page uh, 177 with Kang floating on the on this invisible like lounge. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I remember seeing that when I was a kid, when I was like 11 years old or whatever, and just thinking that was like in one image that conveys that, you know, he's lounging on a floating pillow, his purple legs are crossed, and he's gazing absentmindedly at a chunk of technology. He doesn't even care about the superheroes charging. Yeah. So I really love this concept of the Avengers as these kind of primitive heroes defending the 20th century like it's a fort. It's it's this it establishes this idea of Earth as an underdog planet against cosmically powerful hostile agents, and it's just really cool and really compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we will get to see Kang uh, a few more times in this book. Do you want to move on to the next issue? Sure. Yeah, number nine. I love this cover. Marvel proudly introduces Wonder Man, the newest, most dynamic surprise character from the world famous House of Ideas. Yeah. Um, this is. This is a great issue uh, from start to finish. I really enjoyed this one. Um, yeah, it, it has uh, notably Don Heck on uh, on pencils. Oh, yeah. For the first time. That's right. Yeah. So I guess Wonder Man's costume design is Don Heck's uh, <laughs> idea. <laughs> he has some Wonder Man <laughs> so famously gets called, some pretty yeah. bad costumes you know, throughout history. Yeah, he has the uh, he has the very famous. The red jacket costume. Yeah, he has some ones that are even worse than this one. In I think like the in the Englehart era, or is it the Conway era? I think I think it's in the Conway era and Shooter era. He has some horrible costumes as well. Um, it's not for a while that he gets his modern kind of the the black and red on that's a little cleaner. Right. 
So in this issue, Baron Zemo's back. He he turns a disgraced inventor, Simon Williams, into Wonder Man, and in exchange, he must take down the Avengers from within, uh, and pose as a hero, infiltrate the Avengers, take him down, and if he doesn't, there is um, there's there's something built into his new powers that will destroy him within a week. If um, unless Baron Zemo tells gives the order not to be destroyed or something like that, <laughs> don't know exactly how it yeah, works, but that's how that's how things are. It's a little convoluted. I I think that this issue has a lot of potential. I I don't know if I like it as good as as much as you might. I wish they would have expanded more on this idea that Wonder Man blames Tony Stark for his downfall. Uh, I thought there was more they could have gone into there. Um, but I do like a lot the idea of the the conflicted villain who is kind of good at heart and is in a bad situation. I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty cool um, overall. And the art is a little sketchy um, as well. I like it because, um, because they purposely go after Simon Williams because they think, you know, he's already a bad guy uh, because he was arrested for embezzlement, but that's not the same thing as like killing people and stuff. And so, yeah. like, Simon Williams realizes that he's not actually a bad guy. Um, no, he can't. He's not in his character to do, like, the, the deeply evil things that, that the Masters of Evil do. The only thing that I didn't really like about this one is that um, at the very end, when he decides to, I guess, turn on everybody else, none of the Avengers actually see that happening. Um, because he does it like Captain America's knocked out, Thor is under a big rock and Wonder Man decides that he's going to help them by pushing the rock out of the way. And then he gets taken down by the executioner, but no one sees that happen. So at the very end, when they're like, you gave up your life for us, they don't actually know that that was the case. Yeah. I wish if they would have gone, if they would have done it that way, they would have gone all the way and made it more tragic by, you know, they, they don't think they they still think he's the villain who was betraying them. Yeah, and that, yeah, yeah. There's some, there's some you know uh, some tr- old fashioned tragedy to that kind of ending, uh, but they don't do that. They they could have gone all the way instead, like you said, they just recognize that he was a hero anyway without having seen the sacrifices. <laughs> One of the weirdest things in this issue is when once Wonder Man gets his powers, then, and they're, they're wondering if it worked or not, Executioner just, like, pulls out a revolver and starts shooting at <laughs> And then no one is, like, bothered by that. Yeah. Or freaks out, or thought that was, like, out of line. And also, why does he need to do that with a revolver? He's one of the most powerful beings on the planet. It, it's just all is strange. Yeah, right. So, yeah, you mentioned Don Heck's art in this one, and um, mm-hmm. it's very different than Kirby, that's for sure. Yes, I think that... So, Heck is a very sketchy penciler, so the inker can really modify what his art looks like. Um, to compare, if you look at the Wally Wood inks later at the end oh, of the yes. collection, yeah. it's just radically different. So different. Ayers and Heck, as they, yeah, as, as they continue on together, they get a little bit better. Initially, Ayers, I think, just kind of mirrored what Heck put down, and a really good Don Heck inker, um, I think, needs to evolve it a little bit more. Although, I do really like when Heck uh, does his own inks. But he really leans into the loose style. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Ayers knew what to do with this issue. Um, I like how uh, Don Heck plays a little bit with some of the panel arrangements and layouts. So if you go to page 207, which is page 13 in this issue, uh, there's when you have the scene of them trying to find a cure, you have these yeah. sort of uh, bent panels. Yeah. Um, Kirby 
never does stuff like this. He he sticks no, to his he, three tiers, six to nine panels, and that's about it. Maybe a splash page yep. here and there. Yep, occasionally a double page as, we, as he his career moves on, but he stays in his lane and just sits there yep. the entire the entire time. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a it, it's a lot more uh, arresting uh, panel layout. Um, there's, I mean, there's some there's some kind of sketchy weird moments, but there's also some fun ones too. The hex art is so light and loose that it makes the action really kind of fly off the page in, a, in an interesting way and in a very different way than Kirby's did. Yeah, yeah. There's the other weird thing I'd like to point out is that Wasp gets kidnapped, but we don't see her getting kidnapped. It yeah. Just, it just becomes kidnapped. We just it was all off panel. And if you skim over the panel before, you even you even miss the the fact that Wonder Man asked her to to go see something and she agreed. Yeah. Like that's all the explanation you get, which I guess is all you really need, but uh but yeah it, yeah, it was just um that's and that's part of the Mar- Marvel style at work. I think maybe uh, the the script didn't gel with the images as well as it could have in this instance. Yeah, I, and I mean, and that could be a function of you know, heck, it's his first issue on the book, so he's still getting used to how family wants to tell these Avengers stories. But yeah, overall, not my favorite issue um, of the book, but it's certainly not horrible or anything like that. Well, I liked it just because of the tragedy of Wonder Man. He's a—he's actually a really great character, and, and when he comes back um, later in Jim Shooter's run, it's—it—it—he—he's uh, it, really cool. He just goes through a bunch yeah. of different changes, and it's—it's it's neat to see. I like Wonder Man a lot. He's really interesting. Now he's these days he's a pacifist, so he's like a pacifist Avenger in, uh, in the modern comics, hmm. uh, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, yeah, he's—he's he's one of my favorite uh, Avengers characters. I would agree. Okay, issue number ten. Yeah, so in issue number 10, Baron Zemo, Enchantress, and Executioner are back. Uh, this time, they are contacted by a mysterious man named Immortus, Master of Time and Ruler of Limbo. Uh, before Zemo will allow Immortus to become a Master of Evil, he must destroy at least one Avenger. <laughs> Immortus, I man, don't know yeah. what Immortus' motivation is. Yeah, I, think that's one of the... I agree, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, he's just there. And does he says I shall join you for my own purposes, which you know, that doesn't really get expanded on. It's and it's neat to see you know Zemo and all of them back, but it's like let's let's branch out with our characters a little bit. Yeah, and Immortus is interesting now because you we learn and looking back, it's kind of interesting because we know that he's a future version of Kang, a potential and right. the ruler of Limbo and Time. In that Roger Stern, um, Kang and Mortis run you were talking about, there's some really interesting Immortus content in there. Yeah, yeah. So looking in hindsight, it's neat to see. But if you just read this, it's like if you were reading these um, for the first time back in the 60s, it's like we just got done with a time travel story. Now we're going to have another time traveler? Yeah. Like that's kind of weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's not really makes sense. They don't really reference each other. It's it's almost like Lee just had another time travel story kind of in the bag, and I didn't care that it was adjacent to the Kang story or near the Kang yeah. story. And apparently, and have... oh, go ahead, sorry. And apparently, Enchantress can control time too. <laughs> because... Yeah. So that was a surprise to me. Um, I know Thor can because he did it in an early issue of uh, Journey into Mystery when he's traveling to to Zarko, the Tomorrow Man's time. He twirls his hammer so fast that it sends him to the future. Thor's hammer can do anything. In yeah. Thor's <laughs> <laughs> but I guess uh, Enchantress can uh, can send people back in time through time as well. So there you go. Yeah, and we have some very gimmicky time travel appearances. Paul Bunyan makes an appearance. Uh, and I think there's a couple of other famous 
characters through history. As yeah, well. there's Goliath from the David and Goliath story. There's Merlin. Yep. There's Hercules. It's interesting because all of these characters are arguably mythical characters. Yep. They're not actually yeah. being pulled through time. Yeah, and they speak English too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <I mean. laughs> uh, one of my favorite weird things in this comic is that Immortus. Uh, places an ad on the back of comic books offering kids superpowers. That's part of his. That was really funny. Yeah. And the only person who answered the call is Rick. Like I would imagine he'd have kids lined up like blocks down the street for, for superpowers. At least the entire team brigade would be there. But also think about this. It's like he has a plan. He's like, I am going to place an ad in a comic book, but I know that it, it, you need to like the deadline for getting submitting ads to comic books is months in advance. So I know this plan yeah. isn't going to take place for another few months, but I'm going to plan ahead here. Yeah, or maybe he time travels back and places. The oh, okay, yeah, maybe. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah, could be it. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that's possible as well. He's uh, he is the master of time, but um, I. So the the one thing that I don't understand is uh, the, uh, there's a few things that I don't understand. But why does Cap believe? Why does Captain America believe in Mortis? So Immortus like tries to um, turn Captain America against his teammates, um, and Immortus says that the Avengers told him that the best way to control you was through Rick Jones, and then he believes him. He instantly believes. Why. Yeah, no second guessing. <laughs> no, he's supposed to be like a good judge of character and like an intelligent guy. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Also, another very weird thing. Uh, at one point, Captain America blinds Iron Man with flames from a fire extinguisher. It looks like during their fight. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, in the, we have a depiction in this comic of 18th century London, and there's like knights there, which I didn't think they had knights. I mean, maybe they're ceremonial, but, but it doesn't look <laughs> like it. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. But that's maybe a mortis missing with the time, the timeline as well. Yeah. Because that it's would be true. like 16th century or something, right? Not 18th yeah, century. Yeah. I don't. I just don't think it's 18th century London. Yeah. There's. I, I feel like this issue must have been thrown uh, together very quickly, which I think actually makes sense because at this point now the Avengers is monthly. Beginning in issue seven, they became a monthly comic. So maybe at this point in the cycle, the schedule is catching up with them a little bit. Yeah. Yep, uh, I do. There are some, I think, uh, art highlights on page 232 and 233 of the Epic Collection. Um, I, I like those pages a lot. We're, I mean, talking about heck, experimenting with panels a little bit more. These are these kind of taller panels. Well, there, there's a just a four panel grid on 232, and then on 233, there's six panels, and there are these long, narrow ones. And I, I think it just looks really cool. Oh yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, and you don't usually see. Um, as many panels this big. This almost feels like a like a John Byrne layout from from West Coast Avengers or something like that. This is you, it's not those really tiny panels that are common to the to the era. Um, yeah, you you don't usually yeah you wouldn't see that in Kirby work especially. Definitely not. Yeah, no. interesting. Yeah, so uh, another kind of uh, so kind of middling issue, I guess. It's it's interesting because of Immortus. Looking now that we can look back on that, but overall this is not. Uh, not a standout issue from the collection. Yeah, and especially like we don't need another time traveler. The next issue is going to have Kang in it again. It's like wow, holy cow, we are yeah, we're this, overdoing this issue it here. after Jack Kirby left, but before the Kooky Quartet kicks in. Is um, there's some really cool? I don't. I, the team seems to be kind of in flux. The book does. Uh, it's not my favorite. 
Yeah, that's very true. So one last thing about this issue is that there is a bonus little pinup at the very end here, um, which is drawn, looks like Jack Kirby. Uh, so he's got a little... Yeah. I, I love these pinups. They, they're so great. Um, and there are not very many of them in the they're Avengers great. They're my, I mean, all of those, like in the Amazing Spider-Man Annual number one that had all of those pinups in it. I just love all of these Silver Age. Yeah. Uh, Silver Age bonus material. They're so great. Yeah. Well, Chris, you know what? We've been talking for an hour and a half now. And we're only halfway through the book. So I fear <laughs> that this is going to be a three-hour episode. So I don't want it to be that long. So I think we should probably end here and continue on um, in another episode. Sounds good. It's a two-parter. This was great so far yeah. to uh, talk about these early issues. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, getting into the kooky quartet will be um, a lot of fun. And I can't wait to do that uh, when we get into the next issue. So I would do want to note that because the Captain Marvel movie is coming out in another week, the next episode is not going to be the continuation of this episode. We're going to do um, a Captain Marvel episode, or sorry, Miss Marvel. We're going to talk about Carol Danvers' early days. Um, nice. oh, is, that the, is that like Chris Claremont material? Yes, it is. Absolutely. Uh, and right. so we'll, we'll get back to this Avengers um, after we talk about Miss Marvel. So stay Sounds tuned. Good. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks, Chris, for joining us on this one, and we will see everybody next time. Thanks.